0: Life Christian Centre is a church located in the city of Adelaide. It is made up of people from different backgrounds and walks of life who have been transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us online at www.life-church.com.au Well, to join honour, we have a guest speaker today, Dr. Alan Meyer. Great man of God. He's always so much fun. I just enjoy being with him. But he's pastor of the church. For those that don't know, he's been with us for many, many years. But um, he's pastor of the church for many years. He and his wife, Helen, have established Careforce uh, Careforce Life Keys Ministry that releases healing, uh, discipleship and evangelism. And they've released it to 2,300 churches, probably more now. Over 10,000. Wow. need to update your website. There's lots of churches all over the world that this has gone to, including ours. And we love the courses that they run. And so uh, I know that he loves God and he loves the Word of God and he loves the church. And he's, gonna, he's a man of passion and I'm sure God is going to bless us. He's, part of, uh, he's a friend of the church and he's a part of the family of Life Christian Centre. So let's give him a warm welcome to Dr. Alan Martin.
1: Thank you. Thank you my so much, my friend. Good morning, you precious people. Today I'm here because Pastor Joe is elsewhere. And I'm not, I'm not resentful at all that he's in Noosa, and I'm not. It doesn't affect my emotions one little bit. I'm very glad for him. What a privilege to be with you. I'm going to share with you today a message that is not a new message. It's not new for me. It's one of the passions that I carry. In fact, the Bible puts it this way: the words of Jesus said, "Every scribe who is uh, been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house, and he brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old." Today, I'm going to share with you an older message, but it's been just so stirred in my heart because Helen and I, over the past couple of months. Rewrote and retaught our Making Marriage Better course. And it was during the teaching of that course that I just was reminded of the power of one of the greatest insights that you will find in the Bible when you're seeking to love an imperfect person. I want to talk to you about how to love imperfect people. And if you can't do that, you're in a lot of trouble because there aren't any other kind, there's no other kind to love. So if you have problems with imperfect people, you're going to have a lot of problems. Um, and then people are going to have troubles with you because you're one too. And the reality is, this becomes one of the greatest insights in the scripture. And as I was sharing it with the, these precious 26 people who were going through the course, and many of them were on the brink of losing their marriages, one of them came and said, I would have, I would have kept the whole course, was wrapped up for me in that one night because I saw it. And today, I want to share with you an old message. How do you learn to love imperfect people? And the reality is, it has to start in your own home. If it doesn't start there, it'll never work anywhere. And one of the great, uh, one of the great needs in our life is we need insight. See, being a human being is an extraordinary privilege. You are not a magpie. Although today, if you were a magpie, you'd be gloriously happy. <laughs> you are not a horse or a cow or a dog you are a human being and as a result you you are faced with the most extraordinary possibility the possibility of being a child of God experiencing the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting are your possibilities because you are a human being But with that possibility comes an extraordinary responsibility. You are responsible before God to not behave like an animal and to understand that God has given you insight and if you live according to the truth, life can work. And if you don't live according to the truth, life can be really, really hard and you're not even sure why. May today be an eye open for you. If if you didn't know this already, then I'm glad you came because God loves you. And God did not create you to be a bad example. He created you to be his son or his daughter with all of eternity in a new heaven and in a new earth where no tears, no suffering, no war, no death, no dying, just extraordinary creative possibilities stretching out before you That's that's your possibility. That's the possibility attached to being a human being. But you've got to understand, let God speak to you because uh, ignorance doesn't help anybody. Now, the importance of learning this in your own home is underlined by the life of Noah. A lot of human beings in Noah's day, but only eight of them survived because with being human comes responsibility And there can come a point where God says, I'm not putting up with this anymore. And in Noah's day, God said, I'm not putting up with this anymore. He said to Noah, I will cleanse the earth and start again. So the only ones who survived the flood of Noah's day was Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people. Now, the good question, why was it that Noah survived and all the other people in the world got wiped away? Good question, read the Bible because in the Bible there are answers to very difficult questions and here is why Noah survives the plot. Now this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, Noah was a good man, blameless among the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God. He's a good man, he was righteous and he walked with God and God said, I'll work with you. It must have been marvellous to be married to that kind of man. I mean, Mrs Noah must have woken up every morning saying, oh, Noah, you're an amazing man, thank you, thank you. What an amazing thing to be one of his boys. You'd wake up every dad saying, oh, dad, you are just the best dad in the world because if we had anyone else for a dad, we'd all be dead. Thank you, daddy. <laughs> Question, if it was such a blessing to have this man for your daddy, How come in a couple of chapters in the Bible, one of these very fortunate boys ends up being cursed? Very good question. Difficult questions answered in the Bible come up three chapters. Genesis 9, I'll read it to you. This is why one of these boys ended up being cursed. Now Noah was a man of the soil and he proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father lying naked and told his two brothers outside. Hoo-hoo, boys. Dad's lying around in the nutty, boys. (laughs) But Shem and Japheth took a blanket, laid it across their shoulders, and walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him he said cursed be Canaan the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers so why did this boy end up being cursed because his father was a bad man see that's a paradox that you can be such a good man the only reason I survived was because my daddy's a good man but the reason I'm cursed is because my daddy is a bad man and that's what you find with people They are a blessing and they are a problem. But did you notice that it wasn't Noah who ended up cursed? It was his son because he didn't handle the inappropriate behavior of his own father appropriately. He was the one who paid the price. And this becomes a principle that you've got to understand because it's going to be working in your life till the day you depart the planet. And it's you that can end up paying the price for other people's contradictory behaviour. Now, if that was the only time in the Bible that you read that, then it's not a principle, it's just an interesting story. The Bible says, uh, out of two, without two or three witnesses, never let anything be established. Without two or three witnesses, let a thing be established. So if you don't find this story repeated in the Bible, it's not uh, a principle, it's just interesting. But you do find it repeated. I'll give you another profound example of how this unfolds in an entire book of the Bible, which is 2 Samuel. Now, 2 Samuel has a hero at the centre of it. And the hero at the centre of 2 Samuel is King David, the mighty King David. In chapter 1, he hears that King Saul has been killed on the battlefield. King Saul's been trying to murder him for years. Now, how does this young man behave when he hears the king is finally dead? Does he dance on his grave? Woohoo! hoo woo the wicked king is dead. No, that's not what he does. He writes a song of lament. He writes the psalm, how are the mighty fallen? And he honours the king who's been trying to kill him because he's a good man. In chapter 2, the whole tribe of Judah come to David and say, David, you need to be the king because you're such a good man. They anoint David king over the tribe of Judah. In chapter 3, David starts having a family. But it's a bit different than the average family because he's got six, uh, six wives. But what a man, every wife starts popping out a firstborn son, one after another. Six wives, six firstborn sons. Wife number one produces son number one, Amnon. Wife number three produces son number three, Absalom, and these six boys are growing up in the home of a national hero. In chapter four, David finds out who killed Saul's grandson, a son, Mephibosheth, uh, Ishbosheth, and kills him and wipes him out, makes him pay for their sin. In chapter five, the whole of the nation come to David and say, David, you should be king over the whole nation. David is crowned king over Israel. And finally, he captures the Jebusite stronghold we now call Jerusalem. He captures it for the first time. In chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and sets it up as the, at the centre of national worship for the very first time. In chapter 7, God comes to David and says, Davy, you're such a good man, I'm going to make a promise to you. There will be a king reigning over Israel that will come out of your body and he's going to reign for all time. And that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of David. In chapter 8, he has one victory after another. In chapter 9, he discovers that one of Saul's crippled offspring, Mephibosheth, is still alive. Does he kill him? Get rid of an, uh, an old enemy's grandson? No. Brings him into his table, treats him like a son. In chapter 10, David defeats the Ammonites. Is there nothing this good man cannot do? Chapter 11 is a bad day in the office. He spots a neighbour's wife having a bath. Invites her over for a game of chess. (laughs) Turns into a very vigorous game of chess. (laughs) He gets the neighbour's wife pregnant. What do you do when you get the neighbour's wife pregnant? Bring the neighbour home from the war. He'll sleep with his wife. No one will ever know whose kid this really is. But here is a man so loyal to his king, he is not willing to have one night with his wife while men under his command are sleeping out on a battlefield. He sleeps on David's doorstep. How do you reward a man for that kind of loyalty? You murder the guy. And adultery and murder is a bad day in the average man's office. Chapter 12, the prophet of Israel, Nathan, puts his finger in his face and says, You, sir, are a bad man. A paradox. Such a good man, he's the man after God's own heart. Such a bad man, he's known as an adulterer and a murderer to this day. But watch it spill into his family. Chapter 13, his eldest son gets the hots for his half sister Tamar, drags the girl into his bed and rapes the girl. What's daddy going to do about that? Well, it's not easy for daddy to discipline the eldest son for rape when he's just been exposed as an adulterer and a murderer. Daddy does nothing. But the girl has a big brother. His name's Absalom. He waits two years for David to sort out this family crisis, and when David does nothing, he decides to fix it himself. He murders his brother and skips town. One dead son. Now he's waiting for a phone call from his dad because we've got to a real crisis here. One raped daughter and one dead son is worth a phone call, but the phone call never comes. The boy waits for a couple of years until he starts to agitate amongst his father's friends to get his dad interested in fixing the family's crisis. His dad allows him to come back to Jerusalem, but still they don't have that conversation. And finally, seven years down the track, this young man is so angry with his father's incapacity to act, he starts burning things down. And by chapter 16 or 15, this boy's standing in the gates of Israel saying, would that I was king in Israel. And in chapter 16, that boy goes for his father's throat and throws the entire nation into civil war. In chapter 18, that boy is hanging by his hair from a tree with three javelins sticking out of his chest. And his father is in an upstairs room sobbing his heart out. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I could have died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What is that? It's an extraordinary paradox that a man can be this good and leave such an extraordinary legacy of good, but so bad that he's known for this stuff as well. But did you notice it's not David who's dead? He's the naughty boy, but it's his sons who are dead because when they observed their father's inconsistent behaviour, they did not handle it appropriately. And this principle is vital because you and I need to appreciate that we are marked by our parents. When God has created us in his image, And part of creating us in his image is he has created us for intimacy and community. And one of the ways that is possible is that God has created in our brains mirror neurons. uh, It's the mirror neurons in our brain that connect us to the behaviour of other people that then mark our emotions and our personality. It's that which allows us to become socialised and feel other people's need and other people's pain and other people's love. But at the same time, it has a problem attached to it. When our, when our parents and those around us behave in an appropriate way, the mirror neurons mark that good stuff in our character and personality. When our, the people around us behave inappropriately, the mirror neurons mark that stuff and we become the product of the people we observe the most closely for both good and for harm. And God knew that that would be true. Have you ever watched this process? Of course you have, you've watched this process at work with the birth of a baby. When a baby is born, one of the greatest needs a kid's gonna have in life is the ability to communicate. Um, It's not easy to learn a language. I spent two years in high school trying to learn German uh, with a textbook, with an expert and dedicated lessons. I couldn't buy a tram ticket in Frankfurt with, the, with two years of, of, of attempted German. But I do English quite well. Well, how did that happen? Well, it's obvious. My mother took me straight from the hospital to this great government institution where these experts teach, that's not how it happens. I did not learn English by going to a school with a textbook. They put me in a crib and they took me home and put me in, in a house. And as the people around me did their life, my my mirror neurons went to work and I will never know how babies can figure out the difference between weird old Uncle Harry and real conversation and real communication. But within months, you hear the miracle beginning to unfold. Mama. daddy, No. Who taught that kid to say no? (laughs) Well, he didn't need lessons, sir. He had you. He just learned it from you. And we learn so precisely that you can hear a three-year-old child utter one sentence. And in one sentence, you'll be able to pick if that child was born in England or South Africa, or he's born in North America or Australia or New Zealand you can hear not just the language and the big building blocks of grammar, you hear that musical lilt we call accent because we pick up the vibe of the family around us so precisely that we are marked to the core of our being for harm and for good. And God knew that would be true. God knew that would be true. And he knew what you would have to sort out all of that kind of stuff. And as a result, God's got something really important that he wants to say to every human being who just might find themselves being raised by imperfect people. Because if you don't learn to handle the imperfections in the home where you are raised, it's going to follow you from that home to everywhere else you go for the rest of your life. Or did you think you would marry someone who would be perfectly attuned Who would never demonstrate contradictions that you'd have to cope with in the marriage that you enter into? Or did you think that you would go to work one day and the boss that you work for lies awake at night trying to make sure the workplace perfectly is attuned to you and your preferences and your weirdness? Or did you think when you hired people to come and work for you, they would magically, as they clock on, just immediately take on the perfections of your weirdness and become exactly what you would hope them to be? Or did you think you would go to a church one day and everything you met everyone you met there were just marvellously, intuitively, without ever being told no when to ring and what to say? Or did you think that you go to a home group and the way they lead the home group would just perfectly match the way you think and your preferences and the way you do life? Or did you think you'd buy a house in a community where everybody... What kind of world do you think you live in? <laughs> you are surrounded by imperfect people. And if you never learn to handle well the imperfections in your own household, you will be butting your head against the wall for the rest of your life. And God knew it would be true. And as a result, he's got something to say to you about learning to manage the imperfections of your own mum and dad so that you will have a skill you could apply everywhere else you go in life. Who would like to hear what God has to say to manage the imperfections in your own mum and dad? Put your hand up, who would like to hear that? One, two, seven, eight, twelve. Uh, no, I haven't got a majority here, mate. Um, who would like a message on creation and evolution? I got one of them, if that's, if that. Who would like to hear what God has to say about managing the imperfections? of I'm going, I'm gonna come to your house if you go. Okay, oh, that's enough. Got. See, I'm a democratic ministry. I only preach if there's got a majority in favor. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to inflict a message on you. Yeah, don't come to church and be so inactive. It's not, it's dangerous. Because God wants you to hear something. He wants you to hear something today that could change your life, that could help you to prosper everywhere you go. Because if you never learn to do this, you will be batting your head Everywhere you go, because everywhere you go, you're going to have to relate well to imperfect people. All right, then, okay. Well, what does God want to say? Well, I'm going to tell you. Now, if you have a little white card on you, something, pull it out, write this down. Because you could be driving along, pull up at the lights, and an imperfect person pulls up alongside you, or they're right behind you in the car, and and you could write this down on a piece of paper. And in that moment, you could pull it out, read Oh, that's right, I remember. And then you could really handle that moment well. Of course, what could be really disappointing is this: when I tell this to you, you have already heard it before. And it didn't work for you yesterday, so how's it going to work for me tomorrow? But well, we'll take that as it comes. Here it comes. Here is God's extraordinary wisdom. Wisdom for imperfect people to handle the imperfections in other people learned in your own home while you grow up. Marvellous. Thank you, Lord. What do we want? What do you got to say to us, Lord? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. You shall honour your father and your mother. There is no ripple of appreciation running across this auditorium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair thinking. Just when I thought the dude might say something useful, he comes out with that old rubber. Honour your father and your mother. Honour your father and your mother. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know why God's always sticking up for old people? It's because he's the ancient of days himself. That's why. Always sticking up for old people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honour your father and your mother. Yeah, you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to pretend your mum and dad are perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't notice when they do wrong things, bad. Just don't notice. See, that's the problem with poor old Ham. He should have just done a Sergeant Schultz. You see your dad lying there in the nutty? I see nothing. I see nothing. Yeah, if I told my mum and dad all the dumb things they've done, all the things, ways they hurt me and messed up my life, they wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Yeah, yeah. Honour your father and your mother. If I told my mum and dad the mistakes they've I spelled it out from this how you messed up my life, mum and dad. They'd be slashing their wrists, that's what they'd be doing. (laughs) But God didn't say honour your father and your mother so they can sleep well at night. He didn't say honour your father and your mother So they can feel good about their parenting skills. It's not what he said. He said, you shall honour your father and your mother that it may be well with you. You see, the word of the Lord to to you is is not pretend your mum and dad are perfect. It's to learn to honour your father and your mother and you'll never know how to do that till you understand what this word honour actually means. The word honour is the Hebrew word kabed. And that word simply means to let something be as heavy and as real as it actually is, but it is not just used in a positive sense. God is not saying pretend your mum and dad are perfect. He's not saying anytime you see something bad, just do, I see nothing, I don't, I just, no, you've got to see it because the fact is it will mark you. And if you don't see it and you don't learn how to honour the negative stuff in your parents' life, you are doomed to repeating it for the rest of yours because the good stuff has marked you, the bad stuff has marked you, and if you don't honour it, it won't work well in your life. Well, I don't get it. Al. How are you supposed to honour? Well, first, let's look at the good stuff. On the good side, the word honour means to let something be as heavy and as significant as it really is. And on the good side, God is saying to you, I want you to learn when you're relating to an imperfect mum and dad to see the good stuff that's in your life because of them and let it be as heavy and as real and as profound as it really is and learn to add to that a skill called gratitude. Do you know why some people come to church and never actually worship? Because they're not grateful for anything. Because worship is an expression of gratitude. You begin to see that there's, something has been conferred on you of such weight. It deserves to be mentioned. That's what worship is. Lord, you've given me the gift of life, of forgiveness, of, of a destiny, of a future. And, and if, you, if you don't say, well, why wouldn't I see that? Well, here's the deal, isn't it? You see, when somebody does something we don't like we just tend to cross off all that stuff. Or even if we acknowledge it, we depreciate it. We lower its value because we don't want to acknowledge that someone we're not happy with could actually have something good to be said about them. And as a consequence, there is this, in our broken humanity, a tendency when we are upset to just wipe off all the good stuff and act as if it never happened. We kind of stand around like we've been baptised in lemon juice. And out of that, we then give ourselves permission to complain, to criticize, and even to be contemptuous. Why should I? Crummy mum, crummy dad. I watched my, my young brother disintegrate because a friend of his taught him how to be abusive to my father. That never happened in my life. I was always obedient, but I was never contemptuous of my father. I feared my dad. My younger brother got some lessons in how to turn that around. Say, oh, you're you're nothing. You're never going to tell me what to do. Put his fists up to my father. Changed his entire life. If you're going to learn to honour an imperfect father or mother, you've got to be prepared to see the good stuff. And then you've got to be prepared to let it be as heavy and as significant as it really is. You've got to stop wiping that stuff off. You've got to be prepared to to see it for how profound it really is and learn to add to that the skill of gratitude. Notice it, comment on it, appreciate it. It's extraordinary what happens the way you see life when that becomes the dominant element in the way you do life. Now, on the flip side, God is not saying to you, pretend that the defects aren't there. In fact, the word "carbed" means to be, is used in the negative sense as well. In other words, let the bad stuff be as bad as it really is. Don't try to pretend it didn't happen. I mean, Noah's dad's lying there in the nude. This is not a good moment for him or the family. It's a moment of embarrassment. It's a moment of, of humiliation. But two brothers understood that if God was to mark my um, iniquities. there will be my day when I'll be the one who's being humiliated. They covered their father's nakedness. to have a conversation about it and try to reduce the damage as far as possible. Dad, you can't do that again. You got no idea, it's not good. We don't want the grandkids to see you drunk and we don't want to see it ourselves. I'm sorry, I need to change. It doesn't pretend it didn't happen, but you handle it differently. Let it be as bad as it is, but learn to add to those moments the skill of absolute forgiveness doesn't mean don't talk about it doesn't mean cover it up paper over the cracks god never did that with our sin he didn't paper over the cracks try to pretend that everybody was really okay when when god dealt with our sins he saw it as bad as it really was and there was blood all over the floor there was jesus christ on the cross god faced the 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 depths of our sin but he dealt with it in a way that would allow total and absolute forgiveness. And when you allow the other people's weaknesses to be as bad as they really are. And you add to that the miracle of absolute forgiveness. Then community is possible. And then relationship is possible. And correction is possible. And growth is possible. All of that comes out of the miracle of this ability to see. And to see the good and to see the bad. And to rep- to respond appropriately. Now I'll tell you how close, how serious this is. Jesus will then say in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest you yourself be judged. For with the judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with the measure you use, it shall be measured to you again. As you learn to deal with the inadequacies of other people, you create a A spiritual environment around your life that will follow you into your marriage, your workplace, your community, your church, your small group. Because if you learn to forgive with a teaspoon, you'll discover sadly one day you too have children. You see, teenagers are God's uh, capacity to teach parents what happens when you create something in your own image and then they start denying your own existence. That's what teenagers do. That's how God feels. Created you in my own image and now you won't even, I can't even talk to you? When you create a capacity to deal with the sins of others with a teaspoon, you find the teaspoon is being used in your direction and you will be suffering for that all the days of your life. When you learn to forgive in bucket loads, you'll find everywhere you go, your marriage can flourish. Your church can flourish, your youth group can flourish. Your business can flourish because there's an atmosphere in which the kingdom of heaven can come. And it all comes down to this skill, something that God hoped you would learn in your own home. But if you didn't learn it there, you'll go out into life ill-equipped in a spiritual universe. Now... Some people will say, oh, that's okay for you. I bet you were raised in a middle-class family. I bet that you didn't have all those serious problems. If only you knew the family I was raised in, you wouldn't be saying this stuff. You see, because it might be okay for you. Do you realise I grew up in a home where uh, one of my parents was absent? That one of my parents walked off. I didn't even have that parent. What am I going to do? How am I going to honour them? My parents were neglectful. I didn't get taken to the dentist. Sometimes I didn't have appropriate food. How am I supposed to honour that? My parent was flawed. I'm I married to a girl who grew up with a flawed parent. Her mum died when she was eight years of age. Her dad became a functioning alcoholic. She grew up in the home of a functioning alcoholic. I see the fingerprints on that girl's life to this day, of, of that background. I see it. It marks people. And every now and then you'll find people who grew up in an abusive household. You have no idea how my father mistreated my mother. I understand. I understand that my hill is not as high as yours. See, I didn't grow up in that kind of family. I grew up in a a, a really good household. But the reality is some of you grew up in a household and the mountain you have to climb in order to honour both the good and the bad is really quite a challenge. But you need to know this, it's not a different mountain. It's the same mountain, it's just higher than mine and you may need help climbing it, but it's the same mountain. You don't get different rules in a spiritual universe. Sometimes the challenges are greater. And as a result, if you do not learn how to see the good, if you don't learn that, if you don't learn how to let the good be as good they say, well, there's nothing good happening in my family. Really, I'll tell you one good thing, you. You are alive. If it hadn't been for those defective parents, you would not even exist. But because you exist, all of God's grace is available. It's amazing to be a human being. And I know you might have had horrifying. You may have survived the worst that life could ever throw at someone, but you're here. You survived it. Well done. Good on you. Now don't waste your sufferings. Climb that mountain. Because here's the deal. If you don't learn to honour the life you've been given, you will despise yourself. For the rest of your life. Listen, let me read to you what Dallas Willard had to say to those who struggle with a difficult parental background. He said, If you do not deeply appreciate the weight of the fact that your parents gave you the gift of life, you are condemned to despising yourself, for you are the life they generated. If you never press through your disrespect or rejection of your parents and who they are, there will be a similar disrespect for yourself. If you want to have a long and healthy existence deep within your soul, at some point you're going to need to discover something about which you can be grateful and then learn the skill of total forgiveness. You may be better placed to learn the, the principles of the kingdom than anyone else because you have a bigger mountain to climb. And if, you can do, if you'll do it with Jesus, the outcome can be just amazing. Now, let me be honest and say that's not my challenge. Reality is I grew up in a lovely home. My mum was nearly perfect. Mums are like that, sugar and spice and all things nice. My dad was the problem for me. There were two things about my dad that damaged my life. The first was that there were times when I disappointed my dad. My dad would go silent and he wouldn't coach me. He never coached me. I do not have a single memory of my dad telling me he loved me. I'm sure he did, but he never said it. And I have many memories of of seeing a look on my father's face that communicated to me that Al has done it again. There are other times that he might, uh, oh by the way, I'll, I'll tell you one story. When I was four years old, Dad and I built a kite. We made a kite in the backyard, brown paper, string sticks out, we went into the the park, we flew the kite, it was wonderful. Dad went off to school, he's a teacher. I'm four years old, I don't go to school yet, so I'm bored. I'm gonna fly the kite. So I take the kite, head off into the park. I still can picture the day in my mind's eye. The, the gum trees are waving in the, in the wind. The wind's howling through the trees. The sky is black and clouds are scudding. And I have a crack at flying. This is not a day to fly a kite. The, the wind takes the kite and wrecks the entire thing. And when my father came home and saw the kite was wrecked and the string was all tangled, this sad look comes up, came over his face. He never said a word. We never fixed the kite and we never flew it again. Now that moment, had my dad had a different wiring, could have been really important in bonding me to my dad. He could have said, Al, good on you, you had a go, but you have to think about the day. Now, uh, we, we can repair it. It's not, not, this is, you know, we built one, we could build another one. We could have had a wonderful, he could have coached me, but he didn't do that, he went silent. And that's what would hap- that's what would happen when I would let my dad down, he'd go silent. Now I'll tell you an amazing thing. The first time I ever shared this story in my own church, one of my staff came up to me and said, Al, do you realize you do that to us? And I said, what? And he said, that silent thing. You don't yell at people when they let you down. You just look at the carpet and don't say anything. I said, I don't do that. He said, no, honestly, you do. I said, ha ha, you're sacked. (laughs) I tell a story from from the age of four And in my 50s, one of my staff said, you do that to us. Why? I had never honored that experience. I had never uh, sat with Jesus and realized how damaging to the way I view people and relate to failure it really was. Let it be as bad as it really was. Work that through with Jesus until he says to me, Al, it's not about performance. You know, people make mistakes. I died on a cross for that. Uh, it, I'm, I'm for you. I, 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 that could have been quite an amazing thing. I never did that. I, I had the story, but not the outcome, not the, not the healing that goes with it. And as a result, 50 years, I'm still doing the thing. The flip side is, if my dad didn't go silent, he might blow up in my face. The worst belting I ever got from my dad was for buying a bicycle tube. Had a puncture in the front tyre of my bike. Rather than fix the puncture, I decided to buy a tube. I had a a job, earned my own money, took my own money out of my own bank, bought a bicycle tube. Now, when my father heard that I'd bought a new bicycle tube and not fixed the other one, he tore a branch off a tree and gave me a thrashing—the worst thrashing I ever, a belting I ever got in my life—and it didn't make an ounce of sense to me. It's my money, Dad. I wasn't smoking the tube, Dad. It's a bicycle tube, not margariney, Dad. I tell you, get a who could have figured out buy a bicycle tube, get a belting. I never saw that coming, and as a result, I took a backward step in my emotions from my father, and I thought, "You are nuts. There's something wrong with you. There's a screw loose." And I don't know what it is, but here's the dangerous thing. I could never have known that was coming. So I'm not quite sure what the next button, where's the next landmine I'll step on. And I saw my dad as a dangerous man. Now I'll tell you three things that really helped me uh, in my personal growth and in my relationship with everybody, not just my mum and dad. One day I was counselling a woman in my office. And it seemed like, as I was talking to her about her relationships with her household, that nothing good had ever happened in her family. And I said, did nothing good ever happen in your family? And I said, can we find one good thing? So she thought about it and she said, here's one good thing. I said, could we find another one? And we began to do a treasure hunt. We began to look for the treasure in her family background. The more we wrote, the more she remembered. It's because she'd wiped all the good stuff off. She'd shut that down. The more she wrote it down, the more she saw By the time she left, her picture or her view of her whole relationship with her parents was entirely different. And after she left, I sat there in my office thinking, you know what? I've never done that myself. And that day I took out a piece of church letterhead and I wrote a letter to my father. And I began to let myself remember all the good stuff that was in my life because of him. He loved my mum. I cannot tell you how profound that influence has been in my life. He was so stable. He was so uh, reliable. He was a good man. In every way, he was a good man. And the more I wrote, the more I appreciated what a legacy he had left me. And the very last thing I wrote at the bottom of the letter was, Dad, whatever stability I have in my life, I owe that to you. I sent it off to my dad. He never mentioned that one time. Never, never mentioned the letter. But it didn't matter because I'd let the good stuff be as heavy as it really was. I fell in love with my dad. I just thought he was, I'm I'm sorry, dad. I I love you. And every time I would meet my dad after that, I'd put my arms around him and I'd kiss him right on the face. He never knew what to do with that, I can tell you. (laughs) My mum says when he did get the letter, he'd been in a bad mood for days, wanted to... Get a picture frame hanging up in the kitchen because it was like a note from God on letter, church letterhead paper, you know? Can't do that. Have you ever done a treasure hunt on a difficult person in your life? A husband, your wife, your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, someone you work with, do a treasure hunt? Second thing, you don't know their background. You're the product of your background, they are the product of theirs and you weren't there to see it. My wife said to me, Al, take your dad home, let him tell you all his stories. And we went back to his old hometown one day. He told me all the stories. He showed me the little school where he was raised as a kid. Told me about the time he went and gathered up sheep droppings and put them in a paper bag, took them to school and told everyone they were aniseed balls. (laughs) Told me about how a friend of his had drowned in a dam. And dad used to always freak when we were going down the river. Oh, you go, don't go down the river. Well, it's okay, he'd lost, a, he'd lost a friend when he was a teen. He showed me the little white house where his mum raised nine children as a single parent. He showed me where he would herd cows every morning and how he morning and evening for the guy who would milk them, he would be paid a penny and how he would take that money home and hand it straight over to his mother and all the kids did the same to help the family survive. And that was the day I understood that belting I got over the bicycle tube. See, I was raised in the 60s where a kid could have his own money, spend the money however he liked. My dad was raised in a very different environment. And one day he saw his son spend money he didn't have to spend uh, to avoid doing a little work, and I pressed a fear button in his family of origin. He behaved inappropriately. Could I have ever done a number on that one? I could have gone home that night and said, Dad, the Spirit of the Lord has revealed something to me today. The Spirit of the Lord revealed how the demon of despair and poverty gripped your life as a child. And you have grown up under the authority of a dark and evil thing, which caused you to spring upon me as a child and inflict your grievous brokenness upon my childish heart. But today the Spirit of grace is flowing in my heart. And today I forgive you all your sins and iniquities with which you've ever offended me, Dad, because the love of God flows through me like a river. I didn't have to do a thing. (laughs) I just had to realise what the deal was. And I said, it's okay, Dad. Last thing, wiring. People can only be who they are. They can't be everything to everybody. My dad was wired a certain way. He used to deal with stuff quietly on the inside. My brother told me one last story and we're done. He said, I was talking to Dad the other day about the Second World War. He got to a point where he told me about how one of his friends had been shot in the head. He got to that point and he just never said anything more. I left the room because I knew he wasn't going to say any more and came back 20 minutes later. He was still sitting in exactly the same place, silent as a mouse. Tears were just pouring down his face. And I thought, you know, that's my dad. He used to do that a lot. He'd sit with his pipe silently and think. Now, I need to tell you, that did not help me as a boy. I needed my dad to coach me more and not be so silent. But he could only be who he is. He can't be everything to everybody. And as a result, I just had to understand, dad, you gave me the best you had. And dad, it was wonderful. Good on you. First thing I do when I get to heaven is say, dad, I didn't make it, I made it, mate. I didn't go to jail at all. Actually, Jesus was enough. I don't know who you are or what brought you to church today, but there is a Saviour who died upon a cross to open the gates of eternity to you so that in your imperfections His blood would be enough. And because of that, we can relate really well to imperfect people if we'll just do what the Bible says just honour. Let the good stuff be as good as it is and add to that gratitude. Let the bad stuff be as bad as it is. And if it requires a discussion and if it requires a conversation, because not everything can be dealt with in silence, have the conversation and learn the skill of total forgiveness and the truth of the word of God will be fulfilled in your life. Honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you, that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Father, I stretch out my hands over this people today. You know their stories. I pray no matter what their story may be, let the blessing of heaven rest upon them. Let them go from this place knowing that you want to do some work in their hearts. And I pray in Jesus' name as they do it, grace will come in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure to
0: talk to you today. what a powerful message that can really change our lives thankfulness, forgiveness such a practical principles that we've just learned that we can put into practice that will change our lives forever Lord we just thank you for your word we thank you that it was delivered from the heart into our hearts you're sharing something that we need to hear this morning. And Lord, we want to put it into practice. We want to be hearers and doers of Your Word because when we do that, Lord, we will fulfil Your purpose in our lives. Lord, we thank You that You're a God that cares and loves us so much and wants the best for us. Lord, let us go out and be thankful and learn to forgive. Lord, we want to do something great for You. And these are stepping stones for us to do greater things for You. Lord, we thank You and love You. And Lord, we pray as we go out this week that we can give glory and worship to Your Name. In Jesus' Name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. The Lord bless you. Have a great week. And may the Lord bless you in so many ways.